afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be and welcome to episode 40 of the Fade to Black podcast. This is 40 guys, woo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a Mormon woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, Riz Ahmed is an army vet on the run with his sons in fear of an alien parasitic invasion in Encounter. Plus, I speak to director Michael Pierce. Joaquin Phoenix is the antithesis of Joker in Come On, Come On. And we've got two Christmas movies for you this week. Amel Amin writes, directs and stars in Boxing Day, while Kira Knightley takes a lead in Silent Night. Plus, in this week's Hot Take, we discuss the always controversial best of movie lists. A great way to champion the year's creme de la creme, or do they just reinforce the biases of the outlets who publish them? There's going to be some searing hot takes later on. Um, <laughs> but before we get into that, let us check in with the crew. Amon was a speed racer getting to recording this, this week. Please elaborate. <laughs> yes, I was. So I was at a screening uh, earlier in London uh, and uh, yeah, I, I knew that, you know, Hannah has a howled out at 3.30. We're recording this at like 2.15 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so I got back to Watford Junction. I live in Watford. I got back to Watford Junction. I saw my bus was leaving. I was like 30 seconds too late to the bus stop. So I was like, you know what? No, I'm getting this bus. So I started running after it. And I got to the first bus stop after my bus stop. And the bus didn't stop because there's nobody you know, stopping in the bus and there was nobody sort of waiting for the bus at the stop. So I was just like, oh gosh, that's it. Like I'm going to be super late for this thing. And thankfully I noticed that there was a bit of traffic. And also basically the, the first bus stop is like on the hill. It's, it's going downhill. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to catch this bus. So I started running, running, running. And I ran, I ran past like three other bus stops, but I called up to the bus I got in the way I was taking deep breaths. <laughs> I got the thing. But I got to the bus. I got into the house. 2.01 p.m. Sent a message. The Squadcast link for today's episode. The things I do for the Fate of Black podcast, people. Well, fun announcement. Daniel Kaluuya <laughs> has signed on to play him on in this film. <laughs> um, <laughs> it should Oscars be in, in cinemas 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh so if if it sounds like I make zero sense in this podcast episode, now you know why. <laughs> He's off book today, guys. <laughs> Therese, have you been running around every anywhere? No. <laughs> no. No. I've been um I'm just watching a lot of stuff that's been making me cry because I watched New West New West Side Story, Old yes. West Side Story, and then there's one episode of American Horror Story for my American Horror Story podcast that always makes me cry. So I've just been like need a break from like sad, tragic romances. <laughs> I just need like a break from the world. I feel, I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but I feel like I've got to the point where my body needs a full MOT. It just can't handle <laughs> anything more. It's like 2021. It's like, it's had it so it's like, Hannah, stop. <laughs> my eye, I was like blind in one eye. I had to like tape it shut because it was like hurting so much. I've had to like catch so many screenings, like send me links. Uh, yeah. Right, full neck fury. Never go full neck fury. Yeah, yeah. I wish it was as cool as that. I don't know. I think I basically hurt my eye from like eyelash glue. I think it's like irritated oh, my, wow. the things I do for MTV, wearing false eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. 
it's like all our bodies are falling apart <laughs> yeah it's like because i had my wrist so i was like i'm gonna be winter soldier you be nick fury <laughs> yeah and uh, mom's quicksilver yeah. <laughs> i would watch this mcu movie <laughs> it's gonna be this is like phase six <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to shout out because what I've realized as well, and I know we were talking about doing an episode, a special episode, like a roundup of the end of the year. And I wonder if maybe we do it as, sorry, I'm like spitballing uh, okay. behind the scenes stuff with the, cat, well, with the with the crew. But what if we did like an episode where all the films that we didn't actually manage to fit in from the year, what we couldn't do like actual reviews, we get to pick some stuff. Um, movies that we actually really want to champion and thinks we deserve a slot. They might not have been the biggest movies, but they certainly deserved a watch. Um, and I'm just going to mention one of them because uh, There Is No Evil uh, is out this year. It's this brilliant Iranian film told in kind of four parts. And it's about, I suppose, the kind of Iranian regime and I suppose the realities of what it's like, whether you, the jobs that people have to do, how people exist and kind of the, I suppose the fraught familial dimensions and the, uh, I suppose the disagreements and the conflict it kind of fosters in that kind of, in that kind of world. It's just one of the open scenes is is a very slow burn, but it just it's a brutally hits you on the reality. It's so like mundane, but then the harsh realities of like what goes on in a regime where people have not much freedom and they're actually forced to take part in a in a world where the jobs are actually could be one day where you're taking someone's life and you have to because of military service and because you don't want to be the person it's like following orders you know that kind of idea but um yeah highly recommend that film which i wanted to throw out there any other ones there's a few there's any else that we've got this week that there's we've definitely missed. one and I'm going to save it for this special episode, which we're apparently doing. Yes, <laughs> it's official. Now it's recorded on the podcast. It's live. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know, Hannah. It's on the um, record now. We have to do it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, there's definitely a couple uh, that I definitely want to shout out in the episode. So, yeah, keep your eyes and ears peeled, people. Yeah, but also keep them closed because, guys, there's some weird aliens uh, <laughs> coming. They are going to infiltrate your brains and your minds. Uh, here is the trailer for Encounter. Head back. Come here. Keep your eyes open. The game is called Get in the Car as Fast as Humanly Possible. You going to let him beat you? It's okay. What's going on here? Road trip with my boys at 3 a.m. I'm an alien. I'm an illegal alien. It's a parasitic invasion in Nevada. Oh. <laughs> That's definitely how that song goes. It is. I definitely Googled alien songs. <laughs> and I was like, but none of them really worked. And I was like, I know this one. <laughs> X-Files theme too. Yeah, big up police. I was like, I nearly was going to go like, doo-doo. Anyway, sorry, enough of that. Okay. <laughs> Decorated Marine Malik Khan goes on a rescue mission to save his two sons from a mysterious threat. As their journey takes them in increasingly dangerous directions, the boys will need to leave their childhoods behind. This sci-fi thriller is directed by Michael Pierce from a screenplay by Pierce and Joe Barton. It also stars Octavia Spencer, Janina Gavanka, Rory Cochran, Lucian Rivenshawn, and Aditya Gadada. 
Um, before we get into our review, here's a little interview I did with Michael Pierce, whose feature debut you might remember was Beast, which starred Johnny Flynn and Jesse Buckley. It was amazing. I highly recommend you go back and watch it if you haven't seen it. Uh, but for now, here's our chat about Encounter. Uh, Michael Pierce, welcome to the Fade to Black podcast. Amazing to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you because I absolutely adored Beast. Um, and I, I yeah, that kind of like blew my mind a bit, just like how psychologically intense it was. And even though Encounter is obviously quite a different genre, there definitely feels like a through line of ambiguity. So I suppose like for you as a filmmaker, was that something you kind of something that interests you to try and or constantly keep the audience guessing of oh god what's going on here do we actually really know yeah I think that is somehow uh the project that I'm fascinated with is exploring a character who uh elicits different responses from an audience you know and you, you go on a journey with that character and someone that maybe starts as a hero and becomes an anti-hero and then potentially becomes a villain and maybe revolves around again and you start to question, you know, who they really are and tests the audience, audience's identification. I feel like I've always lean into movies when they do that, when I'm not quite sure how much I'm sympathetic to the person on screen or how much I'm afraid of them. And um, yeah, that ambiguity, it's just, it's really exciting terrain, you know, with the main question mark of a film is about what, you know, what this character is about, what's driving them. Uh, and they're the central like mystery. And so if I can find a character like that and I can put them inside of a propulsive genre engine, and then you're looking at that type of character under very uh, extreme duress, that's when I get really excited. I think, oh, that's, that's a cool combo. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a sophomore feature, I would argue is probably more pressure on that than your first one, because especially when people love it, it's like, oh my God, how do I follow this up? Um, so why in particular was it this this the way you want to go? Because um, I know it was a script that you found, it was on the Brit list in 2013. So tell me about why you chose that as your next project. Well, I knew I didn't want to write my next script because it took me so long to write these. <laughs> it was something like seven or eight years. Uh, and the you know writers out there who actually write every day and um, they've got a better work ethic than I do. So I, I was trying to look, you know, I was trying to read material and it could be a book that I, I, I would adapt or a script uh, idea that I could collaborate with a writer on. And so I was just reading, you know, once Beast came out, reading a lot. And I naively thought I'd find a lot of material that was in this kind of, uh, you know, ambiguous uh, anti-hero space, you know, with one foot in an anti-hero space and one foot in genre, but there wasn't much. Um, and it was, it was really, yeah, it was, it, that's why I think when I read Invasion, which is what the film was called back then, it just, I just kind of held on to it uh, because one, it kind of, it occupied this space between character and genre, but two, because it, I really um, identified with the family dynamics within the film of this father and his two children and the three of them having to like navigate through a crisis. And I could bring a lot of my own upbringing to the story. And I just, I, uh, it reflected, you know, a lot of my childhood and some of the things that, you know, uh, we'd gone through as a family. And so uh, it, it kind of meant that I had a, a North Star. Like I really, I knew the story I was telling, even if it was, you know, this project was set in the States, 
you know, it, it felt like, I, it, in a way, it became a more personal film than Beast was. Um, so I just, that gave me a lot of confidence in the material as well. How much did it change then from Invasion to Encounter? Like, just, I suppose, what you, add, what you added to it? I, I pitched a few things to, to the original writer, Joe Barton, and the producers. Um, and what I told them up front, look, I, I grew up with a younger brother and for a lot of my childhood, it was with a single father and we went through this crisis together and we had to help each other through it. And uh, it kind of tested us, but it also brought us together in unexpected ways. And I want to bring that to the script. And they were really down for that, which was great. Uh, but I also said to them that I, I think there's a more compelling um, more compelling sort of genre aspect to the film that wasn't that was kind of simmering below the surface in Joe's script. He'd made a really uh, he'd written a really compelling script that was more of a character focused drama. And I said, well, look, there's there's ways that we could e you know easily amplify the tension by just changing a few things in the script. So for example, in Joe's script, when uh, Riz's character goes to the ranch house and he encounters that that kind of uh, that patriarch head of the mm. militia family. You know, they had that encounter and then you never heard from him, him again. And I was like, well, what happens if we continue this father and son's theme? Maybe he's got two sons that are brothers and they're looking for revenge. And that mm. maintains the tension throughout the second half of the story. And maybe if the FBI have a very um, uh, demonizing uh, sort of guess at what is motivating Malik, that's really going to increase the urgency through which mm. they're trying to capture him. And so it was, it was just building on what Joe had done, but it was just trying to amplify the stakes. Mm. And tell me a bit about, I suppose, your sci-fi influences. Um, Cause I, yeah, I also like the very good use of like CGI in a way that I think is really understated and kind of didn't have to be this like full blown thing, but it was very like, yeah, minimalist CGI and sci-fi effects. Yeah, I, uh, well, the, the opening titles felt like a really good opportunity to get a foothold into the sci-fi, you know, the initial sci-fi setup of the film. And so I was just thinking about how different sci-fi films start. And so many of them start out in space. It feels like a really common motif, you know, whether that's mm -hmm. Star Wars with the uh, Star Destroyer. Yeah, or it's the same with Alien. Uh, or even you know contemporary examples like Under the Skin. Mm. It starts out in space, but then you realise it's Scarlett Johansson's uh, character's eye, and yeah, it just felt like very helpful shorthand uh, in a limited amount of time that you could put the audience um, into that genre. And then I, it's also something that I wanted to continue and develop further than I did on Beast. So in the beginning of Beast, we start out at sea. And then we slowly come on land and then we come to a church and then we find Jesse singing in the church and we slowly zoom in to her face. And I thought, mm. well, what's the more extreme, more ambitious version of that opening? Maybe we start at the most macrocosmic level, you know, looking out at space. And then I, I sort of asked myself, what's the most microcosmic level we could go to? And I thought, well, maybe it's inside the human brain. And so that having that ambition uh, kind of, created the template for that opening sequence. And then I just wanted it to feel yeah, as nuanced uh, as we could so that it had the texture of real life that, you know, it felt credible. It was an enjoyable genre space to be in as an audience, but it also had nuances that made you believe in it. So I did a lot of research with the VFX team into different types of 
parasites and how they would function. And uh, even the first parasite you see in the in the film, which we kind of modeled on a tardigrade, which is a type of extremophile, you know, like an organism that can survive in extreme conditions. Yeah. Even that one, I thought, well, in a way, that's just a victim of these other parasites that are inside it. It's just being exploited as an interstellar vehicle. And um, yeah, we just put lots of nuances like that into the film that maybe you'd only notice on three or four viewings, uh, but it was important to us to, to, to make it feel like richly textured. Yeah, and I suppose, it, I suppose the original um, the script might not have been written with Riz Ahmed in mind, um, but obviously that opens up a whole new door for like diversity and tailoring this character as well and getting new, I suppose, nuance to it that might not have been if you had a white actor. So um, yeah, how was that working with Riz and tailoring the character, but also being able to ca cast some brilliant child actors? I mean, Aditya and Lucian River are so good in this. I love them. So like, honestly, child actors this year are killing it. And those two just honestly, so confident, so great. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it was, I think the default uh, universal archetype of the military hero trying to save his children from, you know, an alien threat. People instantly think of a Caucasian actor. I think I did when I initially came to the material. Um, and it was just fortuitous that Riz had read the script. He'd come across the script and he asked for a meeting and I'd always been a fan of his. Um, and his agent knew I was going to go and meet him. He sent me a copy of Sound of Metal, which hadn't it premiered in Toronto, but it hadn't come out anywhere else yet. Mm. And he really just broke my heart in that film. Um, I mean, I'd always been a fan, but that film and The Night Of particularly, like his recent performances, just, yeah, he, he, was, he was just, I think the world was just waking up to how special he is and how versatile and unique he is as an actor. And so we met and we talked about the character and I was just trying to, I was trying to imagine him as a Marine and he's just got, I immediately saw that he had this grit and determination and this laser focus that I just could buy him instantly. And it also felt like a fresh, kind of character for him. I hadn't seen him play that role. And he was also very warm and empathetic and very, he's got this combination of kind of tough, being tough and also quite sensitive at the mm. same time. And that's what I needed for the character. Like I needed an actor that wanted to explore the kind of vulnerabilities and sensitivities of Malik. And then, yeah, in terms of him being South Asian, that was something that, you know, the, the film is trying to defy certain genre expectations and then I saw an opportunity that it could also defy the expectations of who you see playing this kind of role um, and without dramatically changing the script you know just finding extra nuances um, it brought it brought in so many exciting layers you know it amplifies the level of tension that is uh, in the scene where when he has encounters with different people along the journey whether that's a state trooper or it's a right-wing militia group you know and that that right-wing militia character we were talking about, he was always there in the original script, mm. but it has such a dramatically different reading that the when it, the character is a person of color. Um, so, and it was an opportunity for, you know, to cast really exciting young talents, like most young actors that we see on screen, you know, they, they tend to be white, whether if it's a UK or it's an, an American film. And this was an exciting to break through you know, South Asian actors. Um, and casting them was, it took a long time to find those two kids, cast all across the States. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, we were just lucky. We found these two kids that were just so warm-hearted and talented, kind of wise beyond their years. I thought mm. I would be having to direct them in some kind of, you know, in a different <laughs> way than I would an adult actor, but they, they were so savvy and smart and knew the script back to front that I was really just talking to like another actor who happened to be a bit younger than the others. Yeah. Did you, I mean, had they acted before? They were quite, quite new. Lucien River, who plays the older brother, yeah, Jay. Jay. Yeah, he'd done uh, a couple of TV shows, yeah. um, some local Canadian TV shows. So it was his first feature. Yeah. And then Aditya, who plays Bobby, had never been on screen before. Yeah. Uh, so, it, and in some part of me, of course, I, until we did the first scene, you don't know how, how, how it's going to be. I mean, you can audition till your heart's content, but until you're really on set, you don't know if so, some kids could be overwhelmed by just the amount of people and the trucks and the lights and the, but those two kids were so unfazed by that. And like me and the whole cast and crew, we were all nervous about COVID and is anyone gonna get it? Are we gonna be safe? Are we gonna get shut down? Those two kids just uh, diffused all of that tension. <laughs> they just came into set every day with big smiles on their faces. So, just so full of excitement and energy and enthusiasm they kind of strangely helped us through the making of the film uh more than the other way around you know? yeah and it just goes to show like sometimes it takes a bit longer but it's worth the wait because I feel like that's the thing about diversity you might not be easily about to find these kids but or actors but they're there if you know where to look and you just give someone a chance yeah. and look at this hopefully now now he'll have a massive career fingers crossed <laughs> yeah if they want it I'm sure they can get it because <laughs> I have, to, I have to give a shout out though because I love Rory Cochran. He will always be Lucas from Empire Records uh, to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that you had him and you had Octavia. Was it, I suppose, in a way, obviously Riz makes it pretty legitimate, but like having those names kind of involved as well, was that just a massive get for you guys? You, you were like, oh my God, yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah, for sure. And um and I'm sure, no doubt, having Riz involved, it, it makes the, you know, the film more attractive to other actors. You know, actors are really interested in a script, in a director, but also the rest of the cast members. They want to know who they're playing against or who's mm. populating the world. Um, and so with Octavia's character, I, I, that part was originally uh, a male part called Hank, who was a great character, but I just felt that the, the film was very male heavy and it needed uh, a female presence. And, in the film and so when I started writing that character her voice just came in my head and um it was really dangerous when you write a like a character for a particular actor because <laughs> they might barely, know <laughs> yeah or they're busy or you know yeah more often than not you're, you're not going to get that person but I thought well I've just I've done it now I might as well write her a letter and say that <laughs> I've written it for her luckily she said yes and so um that was just yeah, I don't know if that will ever happen again. You know, that that was uh, really fortuitous to write a part for an actor and then get that first person. And then with Rory, it was it was tricky because we were looking at different actors and I was really, the bad version of that part would be that um, they feel like the generic FBI guy. And I really needed a kind of actor that just brought a sort of gravitas and a depth to them that would break out of that archetype that would never let it become that and you know Rory when he turns up on on screen and you know he's got such a great voice you know when his 
when his character says their first line of dialogue, you just you're so drawn in, and you know that they've they, they they've got history. Um, and for me, he's not from Empire Records. He's always going to be Slater from Dazed and Confused. <laughs> there you go. So when I got to get stoned with Rory, I was like, I'm getting stoned with Slater. <laughs> that was a bucket moment. Yeah. Just make that's why the whole film was worth it. <laughs> Just yeah. making it get stoned. Well, thank you so much. Um, I hope everyone watch it and uh, good luck with the film. Thanks a lot. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Uh, so I unfortunately didn't get to see this, which I'm really bummed about because it, it looked fantastic. I love the the concept of it. And Amon, I wanted to ask you first um, about the the blend. You know, we're so used to the <laughs> massive budgeted sci-fis where, <laughs> you know, you can throw as much CGI as you want into it and make it as epic as you want. Um, and my impression of this film is that it's a little bit more intimate, a little bit more human. And I wonder if you could talk about that balance between, you know, the concept and the humanity of it. Yeah, I, I thought that was really, really interesting because the synopsis which you read out is not untrue, but it's also not completely true at the same time because the movie sort of flips on its head midway through. I'm not going to sort of get into details on that, of course. Um, but I, I found that to be very interesting. The movie which I thought that I was going in to watch quickly revealed itself to be not that movie. Um but in regards to the sci-fi elements of it and the CGI, when they do come, I thought they're really impressive. The movie sort of starts out with a big CGI sequence that is really, really visually interesting to look at. Um, and, and I really like that's probably the most extravagant sort of CGI stuff that we get in the entire movie, to be honest, because as you say, it gets more human very, very quickly. Um, and yeah, I would be intrigued to sort of see what, a more what what this film being more of a sci-fi bent would look like um because all of the stuff which they sort of front load in the movie did in, did interest me um but at the same time the the human stuff um was really uh interesting in its own right and what they are saying about sort of the you know parasites and mental illness and how they join those two things i think it just about worked mm -hmm. mm. i yeah, feel like expand i don't know about this mental illness angle can you yeah I'm I'm, I'm 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 dodging around <laughs> it because i don't want to spoil okay, it okay okay yeah. i understand i don't want to spoil it but what's so funny clarice is that remember we did that amazon screen uh screen test and we had to do best sci-fi franchises and you did take shelter yeah was that is it so <laughs> yeah. i think I think that is what this film is like, I suppose, thematically, visually, and sort of psycho the psychology of it is in a way that's, it's, I would say that's the, a, quite a close comparison in a sense of you don't know really what's going on until you do. As in like, it kind of okay. plays with this idea because as you mentioned, the mental health part of it is, on one side it's this, you know, from the beginning with the site, with the, I suppose, the very restrained CGI. I mean, it's there's the parasite. It's the idea that flies are getting you. So it's very easy. It's very minimal. It doesn't, mm. it, it doesn't feel too much, but it's quite nervy and like, oh God, like give you a little bit of shivers. You know, it's a bit like, in a way, it's like the faculty in the sense of that sort mm. of kind of nerve dark, kind of weird 
alien invasion, very restrained. But then you've got this idea about this 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 military vet, and the more you uh, learn, and this way it's multi layered, and it's basically you're stripping as it goes on, you're stripping back the layers, and then you're basically questioning like, is this happening? Or is this per- this dad just like suffering from PTSD? But I think what's so good about it is that all the way, you're still kind of not sure what's going on. And then you have the child element to it with these two kids who are so good. And you kind of like, it's like them. In a way, you're them. You're the kids. You're kind of like, I, you're, you, you believe your, your dad's your hero. But then you have to kind of question the low thing. So that's what it's kind of like. It's like, it's this very family drama, but also quite, yeah, quite nervy, psycho, thriller, sci-fi. Yeah. So I feel like, you, I can see you smiling. It's like, take shelter, you had me at take. <laughs> yeah, now you're shouting out things I like. <laughs> <laughs> Just one thing to add to this whole, the sci-fi nature of the film, the sound design is mm. incredible. And it really adds to that because the stuff that they amplify, especially when it comes to the flies at certain point, it's just creepy and yeah. I can. Yeah. <laughs> it made me want to spray stuff on myself to protect myself. It was, it was that type of vibe. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they really yeah. amplify that, and it's really effective. It's very atmospheric, and I yeah. suppose towards the end. I mean, would I have liked? I mean, it's very much about these three central performances. Would I have liked to be more from Octavia Spencer? I feel like she's doing the same thing she does. She gets brought in to a lot of films in a sense of I'm, you know, you know, if she's in it, it's going to be legitimate. Like she legitimizes a kind of very, I suppose Riz Ahmed is a big star, but also having Octavia there. Would I have liked a bit more from her? And I think they expanded the role for sure, because obviously it sucks to Octavia Spencer. You can't just mm-hmm. like, I've got a minute. And it's, and, um, and, you know, what was so interesting is, you know, speaking to Michael as well, is like how much this was written originally for a white guy for a role, but just mm-hmm. how much how much having Riz Ahmed playing the character, um, how much that changes things, not in a way that's so overt, like there's so many things that doesn't have to be said, but just the fact that he is a brown military vet and he's got brown kids, how much that in certain bits in the film uh, adds to the tension and this like really like, like this is what I mean, it's multi-layered. There's so many things going on and I think it really candles them in a way that doesn't feel like, overtly screaming at you it's kind of like loads of subtlety there i think that's really interesting i didn't know that i'm i'm really excited to listen back to your interview with michael because you saying that like the scene which i think of immediately when you said that was a more in my mind overt thing because there is a encounter with an officer yeah uh, and so many encounters. <laughs> None of them that brief. Was not intentional. <laughs> that was not intentional, I promise. <laughs> it just happened. Um, but um, yeah, and you saying that this movie was initially written for a white guy, like if they're including scenes like that, that means I have to rewrite a lot of stuff to key it to Riz because that scene, for one thing, does not work with a white dude. And there are multiple scenes which don't work with a white dude that, in my mind, I'm not No, subtle. but this is the point. I don't think... I, the thing is, I don't think they had to rewrite it too much because I think sometimes... That's what I'm talking about, the subtlety of things. Sometimes it the you can understand why... Like, it's hard to say it because I don't want to spoil it, so maybe I'll yeah. say it for after it's our chat. Or yeah. But I think sometimes just by putting a person of colour in a situation where there is conflict, that adds on a whole new dimension if you're dealing with, just say you're having like white yeah conflict between two white guys two a white guy and two other white guys right mm-hmm. 
Right. And then, again, this is set in Nevada. So you can understand that there's already going to be like this in American South. So so the minute you put a brown guy there instead, there is a you can have the same lines and same like distrust. But there's an element of it that doesn't need to be said just because it's a brown guy who they distrust. And then suddenly you're like, yo, wait a sec. Mm. Is the reason they distrust this guy is because he's brown? Because would they? And that's what I'm saying. That's what I love about this film in that it's not overt. Like it allows that space to kind of say like, oh, do we trust this guy? And like prejudices to come through. And I think that's the whole point about it. This film's a lot about prejudices, like how when people go to war, what we do when they come back. Like I think post-traumatic stress is like, is probably the our biggest um, theme in this. And whether when people come back, are they dealing with it in the right way? Are we, when people are forced into horrifying traumatic situations, when they come back, expecting them to kind of revert back to normal, it's just mad. You know, I always think about that scene in The Hurt Locker um, where, like, Jeremy Renner is just staring at, like, washing detergent or cereal. And it's just mm. like, he's like this bomb. He's like, I diffuse bombs in the Middle East and now I'm picking out what I'm at a supermarket. It's just, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can't just snap back. And what happens when people don't have the support or also have those prejudices where it's like, where they don't have, where they can make that kind of, you know, assimilate back into it, acclimatize back into reality. And I think using this uh, Paris and an alien invasion is such an interesting idea. The same way in Take Shelter, the idea of like the apocalypse, that's such an interesting idea to kind of look at mental health. And it's like, you don't know really what's the truth here, but it still opens up all these amazing questions about how we handle it and how we treat people who have those issues. Interesting. Okay, that sounds great. Um, also, like that Janina Gavanka is in this, who uh, for yeah. Star Wars fans, Aiden Fosio yeah. from the Battlefront game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really sorry to that woman, but I can't. But also, she will never be I will say this character. about Janina as well. Like, she was, she you know, she's playing the wife in this. She was the wife in the Get Back or whatever, the Way Back or something, that Ben Affleck mm. one. It's like, she mm. played the ex-wife and that's like, give her more to do. She's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you watch this. more like badass ex-Stormtrooper roles. Yeah. She was, <laughs> she was in, um, she was, there was a series called uh, The League. And I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's one of my favorite series ever made. Uh, oh, it's, wow. got, it's like Mark Duplass, um, oh, Nick, yeah, Nick Kroll, uh, Jason Manzoukas. It's just Portia. It's just so funny. And she's what? in it. She's basically about these like mates who are in a group, they're group of friends and they have a, a fantasy football league, but they're all terrible to each other. They're so awful to each other. <laughs> and there's a whole thing where it's like there's the Shiva trophy and she's Shiva. And it's like, <laughs> it's just, I can't even do it justice, but shout out to any of the league fans out there who can mm. celebrate my love this show. And also, you mm. should all watch it as well. Um, I'll add it to the okay. list. So it's a screen for the league. <laughs> but for Encounter, are we going uh, screen, stream, or skip? Amon. Screen. Screen. I'll also say, I mean, it, all, it almost goes without saying at this point, but Riz Ahmed is not only one of the best British actors in the world, just one of the best actors in the world, period. And yeah. he proves it again here. He's just incredible. Yeah. So I'm screen for sure. And also on Monday, I don't know if they, uh, they're, they're doing a screening of Encounter at Kersal Zero and I'm hosting it with Riz Ahmed. So if you're about, if you, I don't know if there'll be tickets left when we post it on Sunday, but have a look, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also was in a Star Wars. <laughs> it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all true. Um, 
Oh, you know who's never going to be in a Star Wars movie? Probably Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> Picture that. Um, but he is. You know what he does love? A Mike Mills movie. <laughs> it's time for Come On, Come On. When you think about the future, how do you imagine it'll be? What will stay with you? And what will you forget? <laughs> How will your city change? Will families be the same? Keeps asking me why we don't talk. You could tell him the truth. Mom died and got into all that weird stuff. That weird stuff of our entire lives. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on. So come on with me. We're talking about Come On, Come On, which stars Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny, an emotionally stunted and soft-spoken radio journalist who travels the country interviewing a variety of kids about their thoughts concerning the world and their future. Then Johnny's saddled with caring for his young nephew, Jesse. Jesse brings a new perspective and as they travel from state to state, effectively turns the emotional tables on Johnny. This black and white drama film is written and directed by Mike Mills. It also stars Gabby Hoffman, Scoot McNary, Molly Webster, Jabuka Young-White, and Woody Norman. So I did not get to see this one in time for We've been pod. busy this week. Be nice <laughs> we have busy. been busy. Booked and busy. <laughs> Honestly. Busy in yeah. bed, resting our eyes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm really glad you finished that sentence, Hannah. Uh, <laughs> There's been no busy, funny business this week. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, I'm going to come to my esteemed colleagues uh, for their thoughts on this one. Hannah, I'm going to start with you. The ensemble I just read out is pretty damn impressive. Uh, what are the performances like in this? Um, I just, I just want to say, Gabby Hoffman is this actress who is the ultimate supporting character, <laughs> and I love her so much. Everything that I see her in, she just like elevates and brings. She does. It's like I hate to use it. She understood the understands understands the assignment, but she always does. And it's like I mean, I think about obvious child. I love her in that. That's one of my favorite movies ever. Yes. Oh my god, <laughs> I love that movie. It's probably the best rom com. One of the best rom coms ever made. Shout out Jenny Slate and Gabby Hoffman and uh, what's his name, Jake Lacey. Ugh, ugh. Love it. Um, and you know she was in. I love her mad character in Girls one of the best things mm. about girls and then in this what I like about it though is that instead of being the kind of I suppose more kooky she's normally plays like the kind of more kooky friend or like but she's just quite in this it's just I get I just felt everything she felt as this like woman who is just trying to do her best and mm. she's just she's got she's trying to be you know do right by her kid, do right by her husband, do right by her mom, do right by her brother, like trying not to be this overwhelmed person, trying to be this understanding, like, you know, modern, like progressive individual who is often kind of, is, does not get given the benefit of the doubt. Like she sometimes has to be like the bad guy. She has to kind of, yeah, just has to take the hits because while, you know, and it's very serious about like her her husband in this, played by Scoot Maneri, he's got bipolar disorder and that causes one of the main conflicts with uh, not not just her, herself and her husband, but with her son. 
with played by Woody Norman and it just feels like you just feel that she's tired and she really <laughs> she really get get it very well that she is a tired woman who just needs a break and so the idea of that her brother who she's been somewhat estranged to um because of issues with her their mother and the kind of care that they had to go through looking after her while she was dealing with you know suffering with dementia like how much you know, having her brother be able to just take him for a few days and look after him, what that means just for her to feel like a woman again and feel like she can try and get this sorted. And yeah, just like taking on the shoulder of burden for everything. And I just think she's so wonderful. If she doesn't get nominated for an Oscar, I'll be very annoyed because she's, <laughs> there's so many good supporting actors though this year. So it'll be different. And then Woody Norman, who I've never seen before, but he's just, he just like lives like this character. He's so precocious and funny. And you just feel like, I don't know. I think it's always a good good sign where with child actors where you don't feel like they're reading the script. It feels like this mm. could be improvised. And I think I got that throughout. Yeah. Um, Clarice, from the you know, synopsis I read out, feels like you know, the heart of the movie is really that relationship between Johnny and Jesse. How do you, uh, how effectively do you think uh, that relationship develops and how effective do you think the arts were for Johnny in particular? I think this movie is so beautiful. Uh, I adored it so much. I think it might be one of my favorites of the year. And Ooh, um, I think it's because Mike Mills does have such a good understanding of relationships and specifically communication and how difficult it is to communicate to people. And I think like the overall thesis of, because I was thinking of 20th Century Woman as well and Annette Bening trying to understand her son um and she has a line of like i feel like i i understand you less and less every day and there's a very similar line in this as well um it's this theory that like life doesn't get harder as we grow older we just lose clarity uh mm. and it really comes through in this in in the way that jesse and johnny interact because yeah. jesse, <laughs> he cuts like, through the bullshit <laughs> yeah like kids and and also so johnny's a, a radio journalist and he's interviewing all these kids and they're real interviews that Joaquin phoenix actually conducted which he said has like <laughs> made him understand like our job better which i was like bless <laughs> thank god um, for that yeah and and the answers that these kids give and the answers that jesse gives like are some of the most profound <laughs> Like, most wise things I've seen on film all year. And, you know, Jesse's like that as well. He he asks Johnny, like, hey, like, are, are you married? And he's like, I don't know, I had an ex, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, why did you break up? And Johnny's like, uh, uh. <laughs> <He> completely, <laughs> because, like, that is such a simple question. Yeah, why did you break up? But such is adult life <laughs> that... Yeah like we don't have clarity thing about things mm. anymore and and so the whole film is i think like johnny in his way he's he's spending this time with his nephew like for him to realize that fact and like realize why he's been struggling why he's struggling to relate to his sister um you know and also why they're all struggling to relate to the estranged husband it's all just because we don't yeah we don't have clarity yeah I think it's like what you said about the kids and the interviews. I think it's also this element of hope. Like he, I, what's interesting about kids, especially because they're talking about like the world and 
kids nowadays, especially, I mean, I think always kids kind of are forced to grow up a bit too fast anyway in the world that we live in. But they ha- they're acutely aware of all the suffering. You know, kids are kind of forced to grow up too quickly anyway. But what's really beautiful is that even though they share all this very real, the realities, the tragedies going on in the world, they're all like, they're still hopeful for the future. I think children are far more hopeful, whereas like adults aren't. They're far, far more, I suppose, cynical and pessimistic about the world so I think there's an underlying kind of thread of optimism in this and I just I think it's so funny to me that um like this is the first role that Joaquin Phoenix has been seen in since Joker (laughs) it's the complete like opposite and I feel in a way it's like maybe he put this out in the world because he felt somewhat guilty about Joker (laughs) that in my head I feel like this is him correcting (laughs) like a course correction of that awful character they put out well there we go I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that narrative. Um, I do want to quickly ask about the black and white nature of this film. What does that add to this film, if anything? I, uh, well, it looks amazing because the cinematography is by Robbie Ryan, who's like yeah. just one of the best. I mean, he did like The Favourite. Um, he's cool. We like him. <laughs> and I, the black and white for me really reminded me of like a lot of street photography, like the New York style street photography, like people like Lee uh, Friedlander. Um, I think especially him because there's a slightly magical quality to it. And the lighting is so gorgeous. And there's a scene where they're like sitting near a deli counter and the light coming out of the deli counter like creates a halo around them. And it's so angelic and lovely. (laughs) Uh, So I think, yeah, I think it just like increases the humanity of it, I guess. Yeah. And I also think it cuts through the bullshit. I think with black and white, you're saying like, we're going to focus on this rather, you know, you talk about like the clarity of things. Whereas when you have like color, it's so like there's so much going on. Whereas a black and white, it kind of cuts through that, and you have like a kind of, you know, it's black and white. <laughs> like Jesse, the little kid, is like he sees things kind of in black and white. So I think that adds to it. And then my 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 issue with the film, though, um, just on like technically, I just I found that there's a lot of use of voiceover. There's a lot of use of these kind of like vignettes that with the voiceover going a lot, and a lot of interviews and you know, past footage. And I felt like for me that that was used too much it felt it felt it slowed it down and I, I and I didn't think it needed it felt overly it created this it felt protracted and I kind of I, I rather than you know using it sparingly to kind of enhance certain things I think sometimes they went on for too long and I just kind of was sat there a bit like okay can we get back to like the main storyline so that's that's for me I think it just I don't know it was a bit those bits felt a little bit too indulgent and I think they kind of took away from I suppose that's the kind of reality of what it's trying to show. Like it got a bit too, God, I saw so amazing. It got too artsy for me. (laughs) (laughs) But clearly not too artsy for Clarice, who may or may not have this film on her top 10 list. Well, I'm putting it together this weekend. I don't stress too Well, we can talk more about these hot take best of you later on. Yeah, how much they paid me. (laughs) (laughs) But for now, it's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations for Come On, Come On, Hannah Flint. Uh, Screen. Yeah, screen. Clarice, do I even need to ask you? (laughs) Yeah, obviously screen. Oh, sure, then you should skip it. Don't have joy in your life. (laughs) (laughs) From little children to little mix, it's time to talk Boxing Day. Oh, wow. (gasps) What do you think? (laughs) 
Don't apologize. You only ruined the world's best proposal. We can try again when I get back from London. You're going to London during the holidays. My agent said it's essential to promote this book. It's the perfect opportunity for me to meet your family. I don't even want to see my family. Is this about Boxing Day, where your parents announced their divorce and you fled to America? Tea and crumpets, miserable most of the time. Damn, screws. This is a shout out to my ex. Hurdy in love with some other chick. Yeah, yeah, that hurt me, I'll admit. Forget that boy, I'm over it. But actually, I'm not. I'm really pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, this is Boxing Day, which feels like a character made for Leanne Pinnock that is based on her songs and her own life. But let's get into it. After spending years stateside away from his family, British author Melvin, played by Amel Amin, brings his American fiance Lisa, Aja Naomi King, back home for Christmas to meet his relatives for the first time. A run-in with his pop star ex-girlfriend Georgia, played by Leanne Pinnock, puts his new relationship to the test, as does family drama with his mum and siblings ahead of their annual festive celebrations on December 26th. So it's directed by Amin from a screenplay by himself and Bruce Pennell. It also stars Marianne Jean-Baptiste, Tamara Lawrence and Shay Cole. So this is quite an interesting one because it's been billed as like the first black, black British movie. Christmas movie, which is just insane, to be honest. <laughs> I find it just mad that like it's like 2021 and that's the case, but yeah. such is life. Here we go. So um, I'm going to come to you first, uh, Amon who I, I just know you're going to be like, you're the stan. You're the stan for Boxing Day. But okay, so tell me, I suppose then for you, how did that how did that feel then, I suppose, seeing this film? And I suppose the authenticity of making this, why is this specifically a black Christmas movie? Like, what is it about it that feels like culturally made for a certain people, but also people with the wider world or like wider UK can also find enjoyment in it. What makes it Mm -hmm. black and British? Yeah. Yeah. Now the cultural details that this film observes is probably my favorite thing about it. Uh, And they're all over the place from the playlist, which uh, Melvin makes for uh, Lisa uh, once they touch down in the UK, which had the Neo party hard. And yes, I did have a little dance to myself when I watched this film for the first time when that scene was playing. Yeah, definitely going to find the Boxing Day soundtrack. We're going to party hard. Yeah, we're going to party hard. Yeah, no, that was a good one. So you got stuff like that. You have, in my opinion, probably the best scene in the movie is when it's just the aunties and uncles sat around the table exchanging laughs and inappropriate jokes and, you know, with their thick British Jamaican accents. Um, All that stuff was really, really good. The way the camera lingers on the food, which is just, there's something about seeing plantain on screen, which just does something to me. Plantain is like my favorite food. Plantain is so good. (laughs) It's so good. And the way my mum cooks it as well, it's just, I mean, like I've, I've had plantain at restaurants before. It don't come close to the way my mom. I don't, there's something she does. Just, <laughs> um, so, so also, yeah. you need to give us some restaurant recommendations because my places are like Rudy's and there's also like Boom Burger that was on Notting Hill Gate. But I think that was like done by white guys. <laughs> yeah. It was like very Notting Hill. But like you have to give us yeah. the recommendations. Yeah, yeah, no. We we will talk after this. I'll hook <laughs> you up. No, no. Um, but uh, but yeah, all of that stuff was really, really great. And in those scenes where they're at the house, you do feel like you just you know, one another person sat around the table with them. The way the camera really sort of being puts puts you there, puts you in the moment. 
all that stuff is really, really great. And I love that. Mm. I, uh, did, did, I suppose for you coming into this, um, Clarice, were like, did it feel, I suppose, accessible? Because I suppose this, let's be also be very clear this, it feels very London. Like this is a mm. very London film as well. So even if you might not be part of like the culture, you can still recognizably like understand like the reference points and kind of feel, I suppose, you were invited to the Boxing Day celebrations as well. Did it feel like that? Yeah, because I, like I'll be honest, because because I'm American, um, I we don't celebrate Boxing Day in the US. Uh, it's they do in Canada, uh, but I guess it's like colonies UK and colonies, <laughs> British yeah. Empire. Come on. Um, <laughs> so I and this entire time of me being in the UK, I didn't understand what Boxing Day like was. I knew that lots of people, there were sales, so I thought it was a bit like Black Friday, maybe, um, which is an American thing. Uh, but watching this movie, I was like, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of appreciate it for, for helping me understand like what the actual emotional point of the holiday is. And it made me go away and um, read about how Boxing Day is in, in like the Caribbean and in Jamaica, where like you... Um, yeah, everybody goes to the beach and then they have a big party with their family and friends. And like, this is all stuff I I didn't really know about. Um, so I, I yeah, so I like it. it, it I think <laughs> it's very accessible on that level um, because it captures like the emotional quality of it. And those really nice moments when um, you are at any kind of festive holiday-ish family gathering and like you have a little moment to look around and you go oh wow look I've been this room with all these people that I love like that's really nice it really mm. captures that feeling beautifully mm. what I really like about it is that it was clearly written by black people because mm -hmm. there's a certain way that like you read stuff where it's like you know white people writing black characters and it just does not like it doesn't even feel authentic like the vernacular's not there or even the reference points like there's so many times in this or even the conversation like I love that there's a scene between um the Georgia and uh Melvin's sister played by uh, Tamara Lawrence and she kind of like makes a joke about her being light-skinned and I was just like that is such a specific thing that you would not get it's just like, it's just off the cuff, but like that felt real because those are real conversations that people have and joke about where it doesn't have to be like, you know, it's not that deep. It can be just like an off the cuff, like you take the piss out of each other that feel very specific. And I think that's what I quite like about it. I like the fact that it felt very much authentic. Like you just know that this isn't some, you know, person who's like got a consultant into like black it up. It's like, no, this mm -hmm. feels the way through. And I also love the fact, again, I think there's this idea about like how do we position black people in cinema, like black British people in cinema. So often you could have easily done this as like they're on a council, council estate, uh, it's a flat, they're sharing it. The house that they live in is a fucking brilliant, massive house. <laughs> like Melvin's an author. Like I love the fact that the, the jobs that they have and the roles that they play, they're like, this is black middle class as well. Like this doesn't, you don't always have to show them, show people of color or black people or brown people living in a specifically kind of like, working class or like impoverished situations and I really I think that for me just added to the, like the level of why this is so important because how many Christmas movies as we'll see with Silent Night it's just like middle class people in the countryside like this is like no mm -hmm. you can have that but you don't actually have to only have white people in it so I appreciate about that so but on the other side of it I know Clarice we were talking about, and I think we've all, everyone's, I think most people have touched on the how much, again, we talk about middle-class middle Christmas movie. And Love Actually is obviously one of the 
key reference points. How much do you mm. think then that, I suppose, those nods to it added to the film or maybe took away from it or kind of created a comparison that did it work for you, how many nods it had to British Christmas films already? No. Well, <laughs> look, this is just a personal thing. I think this movie... I would have liked a lot more if it wasn't so actively trying to like I guess like be in the footsteps of or follow the tradition of Christmas movies established by Love Actually because I fucking hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I really despise Love Actually. Um and I think the the sort of the effect it has on Boxing Day is like, yes, there are quite explicit nods. The opening monologue is just like the opening monologue in Love Actually. There's a thing with the placards, but it goes beyond that. And I think the the romantic tension situations that are set up, the sort of like love triangle with Melvin and Georgia um, and Lisa, it, it feels weird and like inauthentic because it's like it's that or it's that annoying thing that you have in rom-coms where the the like women rivals always yeah. just end up having a cat <laughs> fight um and i can see in this film that they they try to like update it a little bit and make it a little bit more realistic and they have more normal human conversations but it was I was waiting the entire movie to be like, please don't do the thing where they have a cat fight. Please don't do the thing where they have a cat fight. And they do. Yeah. So as much <laughs> um, as it was so authentic, was it still kind of like followed the blueprint. Would you say? Yeah. It's like the way that boxing day and like the family traditions, that's the really authentic part. I think the like rom-com part of it didn't feel like they were real people. They felt like the people in love actually who are mm. all fucking sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like in this it's always that trend like the the reason i hate love actually is i think the women in that movie are just all expected to like carry the burden of men's romantic whims and i think this movie does that a little bit as well not as badly um but it still does it i I don't like that trope Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and I was like, from fire, I'm like, I got nothing to add to that. Um, <laughs> no, because yeah. you, 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 you're a big fan of this film, so I want to know if that those things do you agree with those that criticism? Can I just clarify something? Because <laughs> you keep saying this. Me and Cleese both gave this film three stars. Oh, okay, but then yeah, but I know. But like I'm saying, like when we discussed <laughs> I it, yeah. I remember when we first yeah. discussed it. Yeah. You were like the things that we talked about, which I found a little bit more like similar to what Clarice said. You were like, "Oh no, I didn't think it was bad." So like, do you yeah. agree? And also continue as it's your turn to review the film. <laughs> <laughs> so please step in, Amon. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay. okay. Um, I was just trying yeah, to do it that... seamlessly, like. Just continue to sport them on. You come here, but now we've got this whole section now that I don't even know if you're going to keep in or cut out. But there we go. So. Uh, no, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate the stuff behind the scenes. Tete-a-tete. They love our seamless um, uh, podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree with a lot of what Clarice is saying. Um, some of the uh, you know, tension is believable um, and authentic, but some of it is frustrating and I do write in my view that Melvin at times he's charming because he's, he's prone to this big romantic gesture and I you know like watching uh, that on screen and there's you know many romantic gestures big ones all over this film a lot of them from Melvin I think when he does that it's like okay this guy's got some game I appreciate that that's cool but he is also 
frustrating in that he makes a lot of dumb decisions. Even the central decision, which really, um, in many ways, is the catalyst for what we see play out in this film, they try and connect it to his inbuilt cowardice. But it's such a dramatic connection to make between those two things that I just didn't buy it. Um, and there's a lot more sort of annoying decision making on Melvin's front that really just makes it feel like you're manufacturing conflict for conflict's sake, as opposed to doing some authentic, believable stuff. Mm. I'll also say that the way in which the relationship between Lisa and Melvin is ultimately resolved didn't feel all the way earned to me because they do their work separately rather than together. Then when they get back together, it's like a two minute scene and then everything is good. Yeah. And that didn't quite work for me either. Um, Yeah. I think in a way they did such a good job of making it feel culturally rich that it was narratively thin. mm -hmm. I think, you know, the whole conceit that all the way through, it's like, the, the conceit of like Melvin's gone away, just suddenly disappeared <laughs> with, with no explanation. Uh, and then it's exactly. like, this doesn't ring true to me, especially as, mm-hmm. as this, these are all supposed to be these quite evolved human beings. <laughs> like not trying, I think in a way it's like, you're trying to, you're trying not to make people bad guys. And by doing that, you're giving them the most weakest, <laughs> the most trivial mm. kind of things to fall out over. And therefore it never really truly interrogates like the bad things that they've done. And so, mm-hmm. and so therefore it, it kind of, everything just doesn't, it just feels a bit disjointed. Um, and those plot lines and like, you know, just saying that though, I kind of like the comical elements with like, the mum meeting, you know, suddenly dating a white guy, like the tension of like having that interracial romance. Yeah, That's quite, I, I quite like that. Um, I, I wanted more from I that. I like that. Exactly. I like that too. And it felt like it was building to something like a big conflict moment. Yeah. And it never happened. And then you have the younger bit... brother doing the kind of like, he fancies someone else. And that was really yeah. funny. So this gets me into my next bit. I suppose, you know, this is written, directed, starring Amel Amin. I wonder mm-hmm. how much of the fact that he's written a, written a film for himself, therefore playing the lead character in it, lead romantic interest, and how actually that kind of lack of, I suppose, what's the, what, how would you say it, the lack of distance between him, not only playing mm-hmm. a character he wants to play, who wants to be this romantic lead, like actually that had, a, I suppose, a detrimental effect on the believability of that character. Maybe it would have benefited from someone else playing that lead character therefore he was able to kind of give him the flaws that it actually needed to make it a bit more believable because I don't know for me personally I I suppose we're getting into performance in this Mm -hmm. the weakest link for me in this film was that was that character and also that performance come on (laughs) yeah no I I think that's a tough one because this film is also partially based on his life so it would make sense that he would then want to you know be as involved as possible in the telling of it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't disagree in that his performance is probably the weakest of the, you know, three central ones, even though I think it's still solid, but like Leanne Pinnock making her debut, she's the uh, actress from uh, Little Mix. Um, Singer, I think when Little she's Mix. on, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, when she's on stage, like she doesn't, she, she does a rendition of Aretha Franklin's I Say a Little Prayer, which you need to have balls to, you know, go there and she goes there and she kills it like i felt compelled to applaud i'm not even in the film yeah but she could do those things it was the actual acting that i was i mean we all know she's an amazing (laughs) singer she was on the x factor but i think it was actually the acting bits for me that were like oh she can act 
Because I think yeah. sometimes that's a stunt casting for me. That's like, you mm-hmm. want the ampedic in it, so let's about. get it into it. But yeah. 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 And Aja Nomi King, who I've always been a fan of, I think she's, she's great. How to get away with murder. Uh, Love you, babe. No. <laughs> <laughs> my sister loves that show. My goodness. Um, yeah. I, I tried with it. Didn't really get into it, but apparently I should. Um, but yeah, no, she, she's really good in this too. Um, and I particularly enjoyed her scenes with uh, ML in this. Um, but yeah, um, would, would I have liked somebody else to play Melvin? I don't know. I don't know. It's a tricky one because, again, he's so close to it because, again, it's based on his life. And I just, you know, on, on that level, I, I get why he would cast himself in this role. So, Clarice, then, I suppose, what's your view in it? I mean, personally, I think it makes it, it was a self-conscious performance because if it's so inspired by his life and he's writing, directing and starring it, I think that, I think it comes across it's quite self-conscious in a way. What do you think of it? And then I suppose also, who were the standouts for you as well? And Mom, come back to you again, but, like, who were the standouts that yeah. surprised you? I think... I think the issue with my performance is less that he's like not good. It's that Aja Naomi King is so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like I am mm. automatically on her side. He's bad. I, I don't know what he did, but he's bad. He fucked up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think she kind of outshines everybody. I thought Leanne Pinnock was, she gave the kind of performance where it's like, oh, I can tell that you're really good at being a pop star, and I, I don't, like, I don't know anything about Little Mix. I'm really sorry. I don't know who this woman is. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell that she's really good. She's probably really good at giving interviews, and she's very good at being herself on screen. I don't know if she's good at playing another character. Yeah. Because every scene was giving me like SNL skit, like celebrity guests on SNL. <laughs> But, like, good celebrity guests on SNL, but celebrity guests on SNL. Um, and also, I think a standout for me is just Marianne John Baptiste because she's just very cool in everything. We love her. Wasn't she, like, without a trace? Wasn't it she in that show with What's His Face? Uh, Anthony LaPaglia <laughs> for years, the TV show. And I didn't even realize she was British until like, something else. <laughs> I'm- there was a show that I used to watch called Blind Spot with Jamie Alexander, and she was in the first oh, season of that. Okay. Well, I would like to shout out uh, Tamara Lawrence, who I just think mm. she, as the sibling, she was so good and so funny. And I recently saw her at the Royal Court Theatre in this show called Is God Is. And I didn't really, I didn't mm. make the connection, but I'd seen her in Boxing Day a couple of days. Ago. I was like, this, she looks so familiar and she's also great. So I'm really excited to see what she does. Um, but yeah, okay, right. We've spoken so much in this film. I love it. Um, so what do we think then? It's going to be a screen, stream, or skip. Amon. Hmm. I'm going to say stream. Uh, I I really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's significant as well in that we've had Boxing Day this week. We had Pirates last week. This is back-to-back debuts from Black British filmmakers. And you add in James Samuel, who obviously did The Harder They Fall, and and Debbie Tucker Green, who did Ear for Eye, uh, the future of Black British filmmaking is very very strong. Yeah. I'm very excited. Let's get about a few that. more Black women though. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> need some more of that. Uh, Clarice. Yeah, I'd say screw it. This is the kind of movie you want to watch on Christmas Day on TV when you are very full of food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna say stream. Um, I think there's so much to like about it, but also I just, I mean, you know what? I love that we're in a position now where we are we are where it comes to you know non-white films 
like I would say this is kind of mediocre but like one of those like Christmas films that like you'll watch anyway because it doesn't have to be but I like the fact mm-hmm. that we're at a point where we we can have that level where black filmmakers and people of color can make mediocre films and it will not affect them and I hope this doesn't affect them mm-hmm. you know I love that mediocre equality <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That's the most joyous mediocre you will ever hear. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, anyway. Okay, so from Boxing Day to a Silent Night of White. <laughs> this is Silent Night. Happy Christmas. You're still alive? Yes, I think so. Jesus, they're early. Tony and Simon robbed the petrol station. Oh, what fun. We make tremendous criminals. I felt so good. We're all getting old. We were getting old. It's just one potato each. Just one for everyone. Should anyone watch the Queen's speech? Well, she's clearly in some bunker set up, you know, filled with tins of baked beans and dog food. Here's to the lives that we've shared. (laughs) To our beautiful children. Our beautiful friends. May we rest in peace. That was my impression of a uh, little Jojo Rabbit <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> Swears just in an order for some reason. <laughs> a couple invite their closest friends to join their family for Christmas dinner at their idyllic home in the English countryside. As the group comes together, it feels like old times. But behind all of the laughter and merriment, something isn't quite right. The world outside is facing impending doom and no amount of gifts, games or wine can make mankind's imminent destruction go away. Surviving the holidays just got more complicated. I love how much of a tagline that is. <laughs> this, this is written and directed by Camille Griffin, mother of Jojo Rabbit. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh, stars. Of course. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Rowan Griffin Davis's mom is Camille Griffin, and his dad is um, the guy who does all the cinematography for Marvel. Uh, is it Ben Ben Davis? Oh, there we go. You did like Eternals and everything. <laughs> hey, it's nepotism, nepotism, The film co-stars uh, Uncle Charlie, aka Matthew Good. <laughs> But as Uncle Charlie from Soka. Uh Yeah, Jojo jo- jo Rabbit, <laughs> Robert Griffin Davis. Uh, Annabelle Wallace, she was in The Mummy, right? Mimic Good. <laughs> uh, little, little mini, little, little mini Vanessa Parody, Lily Rose Depp, uh, Chopin Dirizou, Kirby Halbaptiste, Lucy Punch, and Rufus Jones. Also, Kira Knightley's in this. We, I love Kira Knightley. Oh, we had it. Okay. Kira Knightley in your favorite Christmas movie. She's back again. <laughs> but I feel yeah. like she hates it too. So it was definitely when you realize like Kira Knightley in that she had such a tiny role. It was like this is before she kind of shot to fame, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Because you think about it, it came out like say about the same time as Wait, when Pendit she does that line. <laughs> I look pretty. Oh, I look so pretty. <laughs> pretty. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, Kira. I love you. <laughs> Dangerous Method is off the charts good. You're Can I just say on that, Love Actually? Maybe we should actually love do a actually. hot take on Christmas Day <laughs> because when she's like, when he does the whole like signs things, I think you're great, but I know I can't do anything. I just be like slowly closing the door. <laughs> like, fuck. Go away. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah, like, yo, you need to get your friend Everybody... away. He is no contact now. He's off the list. <laughs> Gone. Yeah, my hot take on Love Actually is every single character in that movie is yeah. a sociopath. Except for Chuetel like... Edgy, I thought we like him. He, because he's yeah, exactly. basically not in it. Like, we, he might secretly also, also be a sociopath. I really like know. the Joni Mitchell cameo. <laughs> we appreciate the Joni Mitchell cameo. We like that. Anyway, right. right. Like, I haven't seen Silent Night, alas, although I've been sent a screening link, so I might watch it because I love myself a Christmas movie. So, how? Uh, I mean, <laughs> let's, is, this, is this everything you would expect from a very white British middle class Christmas movie? I'm on. Yes, I know. Um, the first 30 minutes of this movie, I haven't hated anything this much <laughs> in a long time. Like... <laughs> they are so privileged and are so awful as people and just watching these like I was one why are these guys friends is what I was thinking as I was watching this movie for the first 25 minutes or so um as the wider story takes hold and you begin to understand you know where when the story takes place and what is happening um the movie flips somewhat and it does have some interesting things to say um, because, you know, as we say in the synopsis, there's an impending doom uh, on the way. Um, and there's some interesting stuff that goes into that, um, which I appreciated. Uh, so the movie ends a lot better than it began for me, but the beginning is really, really rough. Uh, I did not like these people. I still, even at the end, didn't like them much more than I did when the film started. So, I think yeah. there's like such a balance of whether you can get, I think we've seen it as well with the success of Succession and like a film like The Family Stone, mm. where you have to, it's really yeah. testament to the writing if you can, and the delivery of the performances, mm -hmm. if you can get, I suppose, relate or like feel for these people who are just ridiculously well off and awful to each other. But like you said, it's going towards a place, mm. I think The Family Stone. It, it, you know that's my one of my favorite Christmas movies Clarice like from what Amon just mm. said like how, how do you think then that as a story element goes like is that the problem it doesn't it might struggle to kind of balance like these being awful people but like there's an it's written in such a strong enough way that you kind of allow it well because I, I actually I really liked the beginning because they are fucking <laughs> awful shit <laughs> and it's quite funny like, like the the character that Annabelle Wallace plays is like such a oh my god the shit that she <laughs> says like, and they have so and Lily Rose Depp she's playing like the American girlfriend it's her first Christmas and the way that they talk to her is so <laughs> mean but also mm. quite I think quite recognizable I think um, Camille Griffin did quite a good job of of like capturing what to me is a very like yeah white british passive aggressiveness and kira knightley's very good at delivering that because she has that like gigantic grin that she does and mm. she'll say something terrible be like oh yes yes <laughs> like, there a sense oh that my God. the reason they're so good at it is they're kind of playing themselves 
<laughs> so it's like you know what I mean it's like they can deliver <laughs> something because it's not it's not a push because they already get it <laughs> I mean I don't I don't know what these people do off camera <laughs> um I would say the characters they play are very exaggerated uh you know like they, they make jokes about um you know, just doing coke instead of eating and they laugh it off and it's so like, oh, it's like kind of really gross. Um, but it, it's a kind of thing that nasty people say. Um, and I think the issue with the film is that it doesn't, there is, so the, I don't want to give away the, like the twist of it, but there is this moment like about 20 minutes in where you realize what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, from that point on, it gets very dark and quite sad. It's like a really grim movie by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and quite... And and I think her issue is that she doesn't sustain the nastiness. Like, those characters fall right. apart really quickly and just become kind of like normal people. Um, like, normal people reacting to a very sad thing. And it instead becomes this, this movie about, like, how do we cope with hopelessness and there's a very weird political thing that happens at the very very end that i will say this this movie was all written and shot well there's some reshoots uh in 2020 but it was all written and shot before the pandemic it's not a pandemic movie this will make sense for people who have watched it <laughs> um because yeah. there's a thing that happens at the end that might seem like it's a commentary on the pandemic it's not meant to be but i still think it is a very misguided thing to do um, one million billion <laughs> twenty million so, thousand percent yeah yes. i would say i started <laughs> off really enjoying it i love like i i love the satires of like really posh english people because <laughs> i find yeah. posh english people really funny um but i wish that had been sustained the whole way through the film instead of, it just drops off really quickly and then it becomes yeah. Really just yeah. sad. Probably, probably sad the movie. most unintentionally bad final shot uh, of any film so, I've seen this year. It's so really I suppose good. then who were the who were the stand up performances for you then? Uh Amon, who and also like I again what I think is interesting is you you've got Chopé Dirisu and also Kirby Hal Baptiste in this, the only two characters of colour, is that mm. right? Like two black characters. And in a very white film. And I'm I'm always interested, like, are they brought in in the sense of to make joke, like as in make a joke about like there's there's certain people and that they ha- they feel obliged to make a kind of awkward like race joke or do they have a decent amount of time to make them feel as, as full of characters as the white cast? I think Chopé has a decent amount of time. Kirby Howe Baptiste, I wanted more from her. Um, I do you know credit this film with at least not having anything explicitly pertaining to race that I can remember in the film because I think that would have just made it distracting and very tokenistic and very let's just have these people in so that we can have a scene like this and tick that box and etc which other films in recent memory have done uh, to a very frustrating uh, degree no time to die oh god I'm still yeah yeah so yeah at least there was that. Uh, who would I say was a standout performer? Um, I think Matthew Good actually, um, as the film goes on, he gets some really powerful moments, uh, even though his kids are annoying as hell. Oh my gosh. Um, there's 
a moment sort of two thirds of the way through, like he just wants to, you know, make them and do everything for them that he possibly can as a father. And that moment really resonated with me. So I think, you know, he was good. Um, I think some of the acting is a little bit wobbly elsewhere, to be honest. Um, but there are some good moments here and there. Kira Knightley gets a couple of really powerful moments with her family. She plays the wife of Matthew Good's character. Um, I thought she was strong. Um, but yeah, no, n- well, I'm sure I, I'm, I'm going to leave Roman Griffin Davis to police because I know she was a big fan of uh, Jojo Rabbit. So I'm sure she has things to say in that regard. But yeah, none of the acting really leapt out to me, I gotta say. Big time for uh, Jojo Rabbit kids doing Christmas movies. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> one, one is not the same <laughs> as the other. straight into the Christmas pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> the Jojo Rabbit to Christmas movie pipeline. <laughs> I, I really liked the performances in this. I thought pretty much everybody was, was great. Um, yeah, I thought Robert Griffin Davis was, was fantastic. Yeah, I really like him as a child actor. I think what he's really good at is that he does the sort of, um, he does the comedic stuff really well. Because it's that one thing when he's like looking really wide eyed and being like, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> he just spends like half of this movie running around saying, fuck. <laughs> and, and because he's like so adorable and innocent, you're like, that's funny. <laughs> I didn't find that funny. That made me roll my eyes, honestly. You can swear now because of whatever the plot is doing didn't really work. I didn't find it funny. I did, it just made Captain me America nice. did not approve. Thank- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think kids saying fuck is really funny uh, and it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> uh, but also I think he's very good, like, he's very good at doing, he has these little speeches in the movie where he's, like, really trying to convince the parents of something and he's very good at, like, forceful sincerity and he did this a bit in Jojo Rabbit as well um so I think he's a good kid I would love to be his like cool (laughs) aunt who just rocks up and takes him out for pizza (laughs) um yeah and yeah you know Matthew Guide always I like when he's chasing he's chasing chickens at the beginning of this movie (laughs) and he's got he's got some great physical comedy I think Matthew Good is could be like a really funny comedy actor and like if he was given a chance because I've interviewed him once and he's got he just doesn't give a shit like he comes he does a lot of these like (laughs) he does a lot of these like movies where he's like a very sincere kind of guy and it's like no just let him be a dick because I feel like that's underlining, like that's him. Like, let me get my freaking mm-hmm. flying. Yeah, Stoker. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So, <laughs> Silent Night. Then, are we going to say screen and stream or skip? I mean, I'm definitely going to stream. I'm like already emailed them asking me for a link because mm-hmm. everything you just said makes me want to know. Mm-hmm. Am I going to hate watch this or love watch this? We shall see. So, I'm on screen, stream or skip. I'm going to say skip. I don't really have a good time with this one. And that is your right, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clarice. I say stream. Like parts of it, I I really enjoyed, and it's an ambitious concept. And it doesn't quite work, but we appreciate the effort. So that's a that's a double bill Christmas for Boxing Day <laughs> and uh, Silent Night from Clues. Oh, don't watch them together. The vibes are <laughs> very no, but would it be funny like to like back to point for like which one would you say watch first if you were going to do that Christmas thing? Watch Silent Night first because yeah. you're going to need like a hundred percent. Because it's not a good movie. <laughs> it's that meme of the there's like a possum like with his hands up against the glass going, the vibes are bad in here. <laughs> okay, well, I think guys, it's really it's been pretty cold recently. 
you know what I think we need to warm us up? <laughs> what do we do? It's a hot tank. Ooh. Ho, ho, ho. ho, ho. It's a ho, 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 ho. Oh, God. This is why we have only been in the most listened podcast list on three peoples. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> thank you, by the way, for the people. And they just accidentally left Yeah, they it just play. left it <laughs> No, thank you for the people who tweeted about that. Um, that's yeah, very that nice awesome. of you. Um, you know what was hilarious? I mean, Fade to Black was definitely on mine, thank God. Imagine if it was like... <laughs> anyway, right, right, right. Okay, let's get into it. So, best of. Movies lists are always controversial. Empire's 100 Greatest Movies of All Time and Serious Ire. While Sight and Sound's recent Best of 21 roundup had people questioning if The Souvenir Part 2 really was the best film of the year. I mean, I liked it. Was it the best film of the year? I don't know. What? Yeah, that was... I, I've I, got I, I've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't this say. is the first that I've... <laughs> what? So, okay. Wow. Save it. Hold it. Rain it in. <laughs> Get into you in a bit more. Okay. So, as I said earlier, are they a great way to champion the year's creme de la creme or do they just reinforce the biases of the outlets who publish them? Before we actually get into it, I just want to give, give some like inside baseball about like how these lists are put together. Because I actually contributed to the Sight of Sound one, but they asked me at like October and it really makes a difference. If I mean, there's so many films I've seen, especially in the last like three months that, mm-hmm. you know, might have got on the list. And you have to remember it's when it's like the film's releasing. So like Nomadland, Minari, Another Round, all these films got nominated for Oscars at the start of the year that we obviously kind of remember from last year. These are all on the list. So it's actually really difficult to kind of like put together. And also you have to remember them all as well. It's really hard to remember. So, you know, and the Empire one, again, that is both a reader vote and critics vote. I did not vote in that one. Um, Me neither. So interesting, interesting. Hmm, That was a a passive aggressive silence from both of us. (laughs) Anyway, look. So I suppose let's so so Clarice, you said earlier that you're working on your first of list. What do you think about um best of lists? Especially when I suppose there's a difference between like the greatest movies of all time, but also like the end of the year. You're working on your one. Do you like doing them? <laughs> and how do you think it compares? I suppose I suppose from critics individual ones to then bigger ones, because we had someone com- comment because I posted this out on Twitter. Thank you to the people who replied. Um and we had from um, where is it? Stephen Shearers, 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 at the Red Fleece. Uh, sorry, Stephen, if I pronounced your name. <laughs> but he says best of lists only work for me when they come from an individual rather than a publication. An individual's list is presented in better context, especially if you follow their work. So easier to match to my own personal preferences. I should add, I use best of lists as a way of catching up on films I may have missed. So, Carice, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a great comment, and I think that is the purpose of them. I personally fucking hate it. <laughs> I hate doing them. I kind of hate reading them. I'm I am as a person very adverse to ranking and comparing things because um, I don't think that's how art works for me. I think movies come to you at certain times in your life, and they resonate and a movie might be my favorite movie of all time for three months and then I just like <laughs> then I'm gone and then you know I've had like my time with it and yeah. I move on so to ask me like yeah in December uh, what were your t- favorite 10 movies of the year it's like I in what let what on what level like the best craft how much they yeah. mean to me um like if I could choose a way to do things I would 
I would like write a diary of the things in my life that happened and the movies that helped me through them instead. That would be how I look back on the year. Um, but I understand that that's stupid. <laughs> that's why we don't do that. Um, but I think it's just the problem. The problem of ranking things is that like the only thing that comes out of it is to create arguments yeah. <laughs> because that's why we publish these things don't they so everyone gets mad at they like they exist to be mad at <laughs> or, or they exist to be like because i find it very interesting like and this is a not a like positive or new uh, i like i found it interesting the sight and sound when i saw the cover and it said you know these are the best movies how many have you seen i thought that was such an interesting question to be like oh like are the point of them really to be like the tick tick box exercise of like i've seen the the most good movies of the year um and and maybe that's it maybe that's why people do them i don't know like i understand the recommendations things for you know it's the end of the year you have a bit more time let me catch up some catch up on some things i missed but uh i don't know don't compare art. They're all our babies and we love Art them. is subjective. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read out a few more listener or, I mean, they might not listen. <laughs> They've just responded to my tweet. If you listen, hey, hey, how's it going? So this is Hamish Dwyer. He says, I think that's dependent on the source of the list. If it's compiled by a respected critic or outlet whose opinion you value, holds more weight and stimulates a considered response. In that case, they're worth the effort. If you're not a respected critic, shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Um, but that kind of leads into what Stephen said. Andy Williams says, great question. Thank you, uh, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Ranking in general is a touchy subject, especially when you have multiple voices. There are so many variables. I think that's right. It becomes almost impossible to untangle. And then (laughs) we've got uh, David, David comma Thord, Art Kid Haggard. I mean, I don't know what's going on there, David, but I love it. Um, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about them. However, worst of lists are pretty gross usually. And I agree with that. I don't subscribe to them anymore. Um, on. what's your feelings following those little opinions, hot takes? And what are your, what is your hat take? <laughs> Sizzling hat. Sizzling. Um, <laughs> uh, the question, the way you posed the question was very, very interesting to me. Um, you said, are they a great way to champion the year's creme de la creme or do they just reinforce the biases of the outlets who publish them? I'm going to be cheeky here and say both. Mm. All of the above. <laughs> um, because I do believe like the best of lists, you know, and again, as much as I think that it's wild, even though you know, predictable, when you think about it, that the souvenir part two uh, is, is topping the sight and sound list. I know based on their biases that if I look at their list, there's probably going to be at least a couple of films there, which I haven't seen, which I've been meaning to see, which I want to catch up on. And the fact that there are people that I respect at that complication who have chosen to champion this film will inch it further up to put up my, okay, I should make time for this movie list. And this is me. So this is me, you, we're very sort of, you know, in the world. Um, so we know, but there's people who aren't sort of, you know, th- there are people who aren't uh, as much of a cinephile as we, as we are, who will look at that list and be like, okay, um, I, haven't heard of that. I haven't heard about that film. Let me see if I can make time for that. And in that regard, best of lists are valuable. I completely agree with the person who said that worst of lists are terrible. I agree. 
Um, for me, if I if I say publicly without sort of you know this you know podcast format um, that a film was bad, I just like to like say that once, if anything, if at all, and then just leave it at that. I know there are people sort of on online who I follow who like you know like to sort of really belabor the point when it comes to a film that they didn't love. And I just, I never, I never see the point of that. And I think the worst of this, you know, we, we've really sort of gone through one round of that when the film was released. There's no need to rehash that and then go over that again. I don't see what purpose that serves. Um, but best of this do serve, you know, a positive purpose in that way in getting people who may have not heard of the film or may have just, you know, missed the film when it come out, say, okay, this film is really, really good. Uh, these sites, these people, these writers are championing champion it. I should make time for it. And I completely agree with also the uh, comment you had of a person should follow a writer that they trust and look to them for uh, their opinion and then go from there. And I say that not just about best offers, but just about stuff in general. We talked uh, in the past about how Rotten Tomatoes is a flawed metric and it sort of distills, you know, films down to a number. Um and while while I get in certain respects that's useful when you're you know, trying to find what film you may want to watch one evening, what you should really be doing is finding a writer you trust um, and looking at what they're actually writing as opposed to what star rating they're giving such and such or what number Rotten Tomatoes is giving you. If you go by that approach in future, then uh, you'll have better luck in terms of uh, what you watch and what you end up liking and what you, what you end up don't, not liking. Yeah. I think I think for me, I've increasingly, I suppose this year, seeing I suppose the animosity towards what comes out, um, people's reactions. I mean, Empire is a very good example of one. Like, I don't know why you're mad at this. What did you expect? <laughs> like, yeah. it, it's it's very much for that audience. So of course they're going to say that. You can say why is this film on the list? Well, you know, you could say why is why is someone missing from the sight and sound list? Do you know what I mean? Like, there mm-hmm. are films. You know, the man who sold his skin was like the first Tunisian Oscar entry. It's an amazing film. Like, why isn't that on the list? Like, you know. But when stuff have got mixed reviews, I suppose, like, why is that one? You know, it's it's all, it's very hard to do it. So to be honest, what I've started doing now is just on my like personal website. It's just doing, these are all the movies I've seen this year. I've started keeping an Excel spreadsheet for it. And just saying like, mm. like loved, liked, uh, meh, like meh. And then not for me, like as in not for me. Therefore, I've listed every single movie I've seen this year. And this is my ranking of them, whether I, you know, and we it need, just keeps, need... go on. We need to introduce a few more things to the screen stream or skip recommendation. We got you know, meh, not for me. <laughs> no, but I just think I, you know what it is. I think no, I like I, the it. reason why I do not for me is because I don't want to like shit on something. Because again, some people might like it, yeah. but for me, it was like no, mm. it just didn't work for me. And that way, it's yeah. like again, personal thing. If you like me as a film a film writer and as a critic, you'll kind of know that. I think actually going for, for, forward, I might just not contribute <laughs> to these lists anyway because I do think. You know, there are so many films. There are too many films. And I mm-hmm. haven't seen half the films on the list, on some of these lists, mm-hmm. because I haven't had access to them. So I just mm-hmm. feel like, you know, again, I do think there's no point getting mad about them. Um, but what you can do yourselves is if, you know, there are enough film critics out there who have got big enough followings that you can kind of like spotlight things that you feel you miss. Like, again, you know, making it more specific. I'm going to do this thing for the end of the year is like for the new Arab, I'm going to write a list of, you know films that you might have missed of me that are made mm-hmm. by mina filmmakers yeah. in 2021 and that way i can just spotlight them say hey i haven't seen i haven't exhaustively seen every single one but these are the ones that i've missed and i might not be able to do a straight review about it but you know just in case you're looking out for it you know yeah. i just those yeah. those are the best type of lists um around this time 
which is why in a few weeks' time, uh, we're going to be talking about some of the films you may have missed uh, on a special pod. Yes. That <laughs> Hannah told us about only about an hour ago on the actual on this actual pod. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do a spe- we'll do a roundup. We'll do the ones you missed. Maybe that's what will be the, the headline. The ones you missed. <laughs> the ones we missed. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. Well, I like that we're all the same. Maybe we should do, um, should we do a fade to blacklist? Or should we just like, no, that's too much effort. <laughs> no, it's too controversial. We'll figure it out. We'll work it out. Guys, I can't believe it. Like, that's the, <sighs> that's it for another episode. This is 40. This has been 40. Thank you so much for tuning in. By, and enjoy the rest of your week of viewing whatever via whatever medium is safest for you um please subscribe rate and leave us a review if you love the podcast it really does make a difference thank you so much for all the people who shout us out um mm-hmm. people who contributed to our hot take things we'll try and tweet them out a bit more so we can get more people involved we in them sorry you. we're a bit uh, we need to be more efficient on that situation but mm-hmm. um you know tweet us anyway you know use the hashtag Fade to Black Pod. We look at it sporadically. <laughs> we'll look at it even more. Um, and you can follow us. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram. I'm at Clarice Lou uh, on Twitter or at Clarice Lockbury on Instagram. And I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. <laughs>